This morning uh, we are starting a new series <laughs> that is going to be tagging alongside uh, Jono's preaching through Acts. And so this, this series is going to be in six parts. I'm doing the first part. We sat down with, um, with Malcolm and Vikas a few weeks ago at Malcolm's place sorting out where... Um, how we were going to do the series and how we we're going to tackle it in the six different parts from Second Corinthians chapters three and four. And so because I'm the younger single student and the other guys are married, I got nominated to go first because I apparently have more, t- well I do have more time. So, so, um, so myself and Vikas and Malcolm, we're going to be tackling Second Corinthians chapters three and four throughout this year. And so the passage I'll be preaching from this morning is Second Corinthians chapters two verses 14 through to 3, verse 6. And uh, this, this text really helps introduce um, introduce this whole section that Paul gets into here in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Because And the, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's really defending his ministry. He's, he's being accused of different things by false apostles and, and a particular individual at Corinth. And so he's defending his ministry. But the way that he defends it is really interesting. And you sort of could think about this and think, well, maybe that just belongs to Paul in that time. But what we're going to see this morning is that that what Paul does here has huge implications for us today. We live in a, we, 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 we live today in the 21st century with 2,000 years of church history behind us. So the, the last 2,000 years of church history has been full of heresies and full of, full of disputes and full of issues that, that the church has needed to, to sift through and to discover what is true in amongst all of, those, all of those issues that have come up. Is it still sounding good? Cool. Um, and so, and today is no different. Today with social media, we need to be able to discern what is, what is true ministry, what points to biblical Christ-centered ministry and what what is not. And so this text really causes us, it leads us to ask this question, what marks or points define the ministry of the New Covenant Church? What marks or points define the ministry of the New Covenant Church? And for, thankfully, the, the Apostle Paul tells us. So if you have your Bibles, let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 14 through to 3, verse 6. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so the first point that we are gonna, we're going to look at in this text is that the gospel spreads an aroma despite opposition. And so if you turn, so we're going to be looking specifically to chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And in this text, Paul uses this illustration of a Roman parade. That, that when, it, when the triumphant Roman army would come back through Rome, they would display the captives and the victories of, of war in their parade. And the streets would be lined with, with flowers and, and, and incense and spices that would, that would be burned. And they, all of these scents together, these smells together, would create this aroma of victory throughout the city. At least it would be victory for those who were victorious. For the captives who were in that, in that parade, this, this scent, this smell would be the smell of death to them. And so Paul here is, is saying that my ministry is like this. This is what my ministry is like. In verses 12 and 13, he says that, that he's, 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 been under, he's been under trouble. He's, his spirit was not at rest because he didn't have Titus with him, he, even though a door was open to him in, in Macedonia to Troas, um, and he went on to Macedonia, but he, he has faced lots of conflict. There's lots of challenges that he has faced in his, in his ministry. But in spite of those challenges, in spite of the opposition that he has faced, there has been through his ministry this aroma wafting out from it. In, verses, in verse 14, we see that the aroma is... The gospel in verse 15, that the, this aroma, it says that we are the aroma of Christ. That the gospel and its ministers go together, they go hand in hand. And so, the way that the gospel divides people here is that it, it, it separates people on two planes. And we've seen this from, from as we've gone through Acts this year. That now... In, in, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, there is no longer Jew and Gentile as the primary divide between people. Now it is between those who are being saved and those who are not. And when the gospel is spread, when the gospel is preached, Jesus will either be seen as the source of life leading to eternal life or the source of judgment leading to eternal judgment. And this passage shows us that the gospel is a message to be proclaimed to all people everywhere. The gospel cannot be proclaimed through good works or, or social action. And if it could be proclaimed through good works or social action, then, then Christianity has no more good news or no more, nothing more glorious than the next humanitarian organization down the street. Good deeds should be done wherever Christians find themselves, but it is not good deeds that make Christianity unique. The unique aspect of Christianity is the gospel. And wherever it is preached, it divides people between those who are being saved to those who hear it as good news and those who hear it as bad news leading to judgment. And because the gospel will always be opposed in certain ways, we need to be confident. There needs to be a great level of, of need for, to be confident in the message that we preach. And Paul so, shows us that 
that the sufficiency for ministry comes from God, which is the basis of godly confidence. And this is my second point. That sufficiency for ministry comes from God, which is the basis of godly confidence. So verse 16 ends with this question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for this ministry in spite of such opposition? In verse 4 and 5, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 5, he answers that question. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so the source, of Paul's minister, the, the source of Paul's confidence for this ministry was God. And so why did he need to be confident? How was he being opposed? And so what Paul faced in, in the church at Corinth, church, Paul has had a long relationship with this church. He's planted it, as we will see, as we will see shortly. But he's written, this is his fourth letter to the church at Corinth. He's written one that was, that was lost in response, and then he wrote 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote a severe letter, and now he's writing this, this fourth letter. And this is his, and he's made at least two visits to the church at Corinth, one when he planted it, one on his way back. And so, so he's got this long relationship with them. And so Paul made this one, one, so how was Paul being opposed? He made one faith painful visit to Corinth after they hadn't responded well to his letter in 1 Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians, he outlines and he says that he planned on two stops back at Corinth after that. And in, in chapter 2, uh, Verse 1, he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And so he made one painful visit to them, but he did. He decided not to go through with that second visit that he promised in 1 Corinthians. And so because, because of the way that that first visit was so painful, and so because he didn't make that visit a second time, strong individuals in the church at Corinth who, who didn't like Paul, although they were opposed to him, they were saying, look at Paul, he's not faithful to his word, he's not, he's not sticking to his promises. They used that as a, as a leverage of attack against Paul's character. And then this, this, there was a group at Corinth, the false apostles, who also requested that Paul give letters of recommendation of his credentials, or that people would, would affirm Paul's ministry, and that upon those letters of, of recommendation, they could receive him at Corinth. His opponents were asking for these letters. And it's likely that his own opponents at Corinth had these letters of recommendation. But it's also likely that they were phonies. They were not available to the public. They were kept hidden from the majority of the people at church at Corinth because, because they, they, had, they had these secret letters, these letters of recommendation. But Paul says that, that his letter of recommendation isn't a letter. It is the church at Corinth themselves. But perhaps the... And, and another big part of the of the way that Paul was being opposed is that they were pointing to the old covenant. They were, they were mixing the old covenant with the new. And so here is this church. Let's consider Paul here for a moment. He's planted this church. He's been involved with this church since its birth. And yet the whole way through his ministry, he has been constantly opposed on different points. He has constantly been sought to have been undermined by different people at different points. 
what, how unnerving that might be. How quick he might be to give up on this church. So what gave Paul this confidence to stick it out? That even though this church has opposed him, what, what gave him confidence to stick it out and to keep on ministering to them? In Acts chapter 18 verses 9 and 10, which is where we read about Paul's first ministry to Corinth, it says this, that, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul, in Acts 18, you see that Paul was constantly opposed from the start. But Paul saw this church birth despite opposition, and the reason that he stuck it out was because he was called by God to be there. That was one of the major grounds of his confidence towards him. He was called by God to be a minister to these people. And the other, and the reason that gave him longevity in his ministry to the church at Corinth is that it wasn't just that God had called him to be a minister and you go to Corinth and you do this on your own strength. I've, I've given you a task to do. Go there on your own. It's that Paul wasn't sufficient in himself for this ministry. No one could be sufficient for this type of ministry. We are not sufficient to proclaim the gospel to be sufficient ministers. But that wasn't the issue. That's actually good news to not be sufficient for the ministry that God calls you to. Because God is the one who gives sufficiency. God is the one who enables us for this ministry. God was the one that enabled Paul and strengthened Paul and gave him the, the zeal and, and, the, and the guts to stick it out through them in his ministry to them. Paul understood where his sufficiency came from. And because he understood where his sufficiency came from, he, he understood the source of his confidence. And confidence is something that we all need. All humans need to be confident. We all face tasks in life that we need to be confident for. However, Christianity is not the only religion or, or faith system that offers a frame of thinking to give people confidence. So Buddhism, for example... The whole idea of suffering in, in Buddhism is that we get atta- humans attached to things. And so the way to, to not be attached to things, or the way to no longer suffer, is to become less and less attached to the things around you. And as you become less and less attached, when things change in your life, you're not going to be affected by it so much. And so how might Buddhism point people to being confident? They look around themselves and they think, I'm being less and less attached to things around me, so I must be doing well in my religion. That could be a source of, of confidence for a Buddhist. And Buddhism and the whole spiritual movement these days is becoming more and more popular. So it's helpful to understand something about the way that that faith system works. Even today in our, in our secular world, confidence is a key that glorifies people who become something out of nothing. We we live in a we live in a we live in a, a strange world, a tough world where where you have to make something of yourself. That is what that is what our world teaches us. And so, and we see this even in New Zealand that one of the reasons why Paul was or that why John Key was so well liked is because of his humble beginnings. But he became something out of nothing. And so, how might our world, our secular world, teach us to be confident. 
is that you're doing well. You make goals and you achieve them. And so the way that you grow in confidence in life is that you are that you're achieving these tasks that you have set out. The challenge then becomes, well, what happens if you don't achieve those goals? What happens if you fail at the tasks that you have set for yourself? That can be very crushing. So both of these systems ultimately point to the source of confidence being self. It manifests in different ways, but the source of that confidence really is self. Christianity is different. The source of confidence for Christians is not self at all. The source of of confidence for Christians is Christ. You are not great, but Christ is great in you. You change. You fail to achieve things that you want to achieve, but He will not fail, and He and He always and He has achieved, and He will achieve that which He has set out to achieve. Christianity offers profound confidence as you learn to look to Him rather than yourself. Christianity is the only faith system that offers a foolproof basis of confidence because it is not in us, it is not in this world, it is within someone who is unchanging, who is consistent. And we receive that confidence through faith. We're looking at him. So, so my third point in this message is sincere ministers point to Christ and not to self. Sincere ministers point to Christ and not self. He says in 2 verse 17, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. They point to Christ. They point to Christ. They're presenting the the knowledge of Christ we see in verse 14. And in in verses uh, 1 to 3, Come back to that soon. Paul was so Paul was commissioned and called by God to be a sincere minister. So in addition to the and in addition to these additional to these previous points that I've made about how was Paul being opposed by the church of Corinth, he was also being accused by the false apostles that he wasn't a true apostle because he wasn't receiving money from the church at Corinth. He was a tent maker while he was there. He supported himself in that ministry. These false apostles, they were receiving money from the church at Corinth. They were peddling God's word for their own gain. And they used that difference as leverage against Paul. And so they were And so what evidence was what was the evidence that Paul needed to show himself as an authentic, sincere minister? Remember that this passage is about Paul defending his ministry. And so there are two key things that Paul points to to defend his ministry. First of all, we'll look at his message. So in verses 3 or 4 to 6 of chapter 3, he says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. These false apostles, they were, they were pointing to the old covenant. They were mixing the new covenant and the old covenant. There was a mixture going on in how they understood the law. And so Paul 
in defense of his ministry, says, look, I've been pointing to the new covenant, not the old. And then he says, he outlines it, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The fruit of the old covenant that these guys have been pointing to you to, it kills. The fruit of the new covenant, which I have been pointing you to, it gives life. He also shows in verse 3 the difference between where these covenants are written. The old covenant is written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on the tablets of the human hearts. So Jeremiah Jeremiah prophesied one day of a new covenant when the law will be written on people's hearts. And this gets picked up in Hebrews chapter 8. And so if you want to turn there, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 8 quickly. So the new covenant is far superior to the old covenant. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant. As, he, as the old covenant he medi- as the covenant, sorry, that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. That's Hebrews 8 verse 6. So he says, this new covenant is better, and then in verses 8 he quotes Jeremiah 31. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the old covenant was given to Israel relating to how they should live in the land. And as long as they followed that covenant, they would be able to remain in the land. Verse 9, however, points to the way that the, to the, way that the Israelites handled or continued in the covenant. He says that, For they did not continue in my covenant. They did not follow the laws. They did not follow the conditions of this covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And we see the way that God shows no concern for them through the the two exiles in 722 BC and 586. First of all to the Assyrians and then secondly to the Babylonians. And the reason they were removed from the land is because they could not keep the, the the prerequisites of this covenant. It was a covenant given to them on the basis of them doing their part. So the, new, the old covenant is conditional. But the new covenant is founded on better promises. Founded on better promises. So there's four, covenant, there's four promises in this new covenant. First, it says, I will put my laws into their hearts and minds. No longer will this law be written on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on the hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The fourth, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and no longer remember their sins. 
The nature of this new covenant is that these are promises given, not on a basis of works, not on a basis of obedience or keeping them through through us having to do something to stay in this covenant like the old covenant was. This new covenant is received by faith. Not on condition of actions, but it is received by faith. So God writes his law on the believer's heart, which points us constantly to Jesus and empowers us to live a righteous life. Here there is no threat of exile based on our performance because these four promises are received by faith. And so to go back to or somehow come under that old covenant is bad news. It's a conditional covenant. This new covenant is better. It is much more glorious. To go to the old law, to go back to the law would mean to undermine what Christ has done for us and obtained for us and that the covenant and, and also the covenant, it would undermine the covenant that he, that he ministers to us. This old covenant was written on stone. Pointing to the, so the the covenant, the old covenant was written on stone. And so the best that someone could do was say, there's the commands, follow it. There was no life given, there was no sustenance, there was no enabling to be able to follow that law. It was written on stone, it was out there, it was not in you, it was not a part of you, it did not change your affections or your emotions or how you wanted to live. It was simply a command, do this and you will live. But the new covenant, the new covenant is written in our hearts by the Spirit. The law is written on our hearts. He gives life. He ministers life. He gives, he gives us these commands, but he also gives us the life and the power and the enabling to be able to follow this new covenant that he has given to us. It is far superior. It is far superior. And because Paul was pointing to this new covenant, because Paul was pointing to, to the goodness and graciousness of God as he's revealed himself through the gospel. He says, this is, this is far better. This is, this is good news. This is not conditional on works. This is something to be received by faith. This is why I'm better than these false apostles. This is the message I have is far superior. And then secondly, so first of all, Paul defends his apostleship through pointing by explaining or helping us to understand what his message was. But then secondly, Paul also points to the fruit of his ministry as evidence of his apostleship. And he says, and he uses this in verses 1 to 3. He does this in verses 1 to 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, Letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. These false apostles, they were saying, where's Paul's letter of recommendation? Where, who's affirming him? Who of the elders at the church in Jerusalem are saying that Paul is a good guy and, and you should listen to him? Where's his letters? And Paul's saying, Paul says, you, the church at Corinth, are our letters of recommendation. You show yourselves that you're a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. When Paul writes 2 Corinthians, He's just linked back up with Titus, who has given him news about what has happened at the church of Corinth since his 
since his severe letter that we do not have preserved. But the fruit of that severe letter is seen in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, which says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so that severe letter challenged this church at Corinth, but it also pointed them to repentance. And they did repent. They did turn. They, they, they had godly grief and it produced zeal. It produced indignation to clear themselves. There was good fruit as a result of their understanding of this new covenant coming through. And so here is this church. They've, they've been ministered to by Paul and they're showing the fruit of this new covenant. You want to understand the fruit of the old covenant, you look at the whole Old Testament and the way that Israel constantly disobeys and constantly pushes against God. You see the fruit of the new covenant. It turns, it's resulting in a people who are being changed and a people who are being transformed and a people who are zealous to do the things of God. That is, that is a far superior covenant. And this is the covenant that we enjoy since Christ has, has ascended into heaven and is mediating for us in our behalf, we too benefit from the same new covenant today. And that is good news. So this, this is the evidence of the reality of the gospel. It leaves people transformed and desiring God more. It results in a turning from sin and a love for Christ. Not only... Once is there just a deepening of those convictions, but there's a following through of those convictions. Those convictions get lived out and sustained by the Holy Spirit working in our lives and pointing us to Christ. And this isn't, the new covenant is not a law given to us that is out there saying, do this and you will live. It is a law that is written on our hearts that we want to follow, that, that the Spirit changes our desires and he enables us, he empowers us to follow. It leads to joy, it leads to satisfaction, it leads to life. It is far superior to the old. So, we live in a world that is full of true and false ministers. In different ways, they point to things other than Christ. There are distortions in this world and what is taught. And it doesn't take long to scroll through sermons on YouTube to realize that there's a multitude of different voices, all of the speaking on the behalf of the same God, and they all use the same Bible in their sermon. And that's a confusing thing. They all speak on, the same, on behalf of the same God, and they all use the same Bible in their sermons, and yet there seems to be such a, a variation in what comes through. There's such a variation in what is presented. There's such a, a variation even in the substance of what different people teach. But what looks impressive on the outside may not actually be pleasing to God. And so if we ask Paul what marks or points should define the ministry of the New Covenant Church, what would he tell us? From verse 6 in chapter 3, we could see that he would say that the New, the, the new Covenant Church points to Jesus as the source of life and confidence. Ministry is done from dependence on God and not on self. We would see that 
in verses 4 and 5. We are not sufficient in ourselves, but God is sufficient. There is a dependency upon God to do what he said he will do. Third, the fruit of the ministry is founded on Jesus and his gospel. Verses 1 to 3 shows the way that the gospel made an impact on that church at Corinth. It produced the change that the new covenant promised to bring about. There is fruit there that is founded on Jesus and his gospel. Not in works, not trying to achieve better, not trying to claim something in faith that, that is somehow out there. But this, this ministry is, is, comes up from within. It leads us. It points us to Jesus and the gospel. Fourth, the ministry is founded on on sincere convictions, not for empire building or unjust gain. So new covenant ministry, the ministry of the church, is founded on sincere convictions, not people peddling God's word for money or these different things or trying to to build up a name for themselves, but they are simply pointing towards Christ. They're wanting Jesus' name to be lifted up and to be seen, not, not man's name. Fifthly, trials and oppositions are expected and are persevered through. Verses 14 through 16, we would see this. That Paul faced all sorts of opposition. Paul is arguably the most successful missionary that has ever walked the face of this world. And yet possibly he was also one of the most opposed. That that itself blows out the, the prosperity gospel of of somehow God giving you this magical life where there are no issues. No, there will be struggles. There will be trials. There will be challenges. But the sufficiency to get through those challenges and to get those through those trials are not found in you. They are found in God. And God is the only one who can sustain us through those challenges. Those who seek to honor God and live for him and to love the gospel, we will face Many challenges. We will face many challenges. But we will not we do not have to be the ones that overcome those challenges in our own strength. We simply turn in faith towards God and we trust Him to get us through. We trust Him to sustain us through even the largest challenges. And as we lean on Him and as we depend on Him, God will truly be glorified through those who humbly trust Him. Amen. So let's pray.